We are glad to make all of our Jcast Network podcasts free for our listeners. However, they are not free to produce and host. Please consider making a donation to Jcast Network to help support our work by visiting jcastnetwork.org slash donate. Thanks for your support. You are listening to Pop Torah with Rabbi Iznopf and Olitsky, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Welcome to Pop Torah, the podcast where we look at pop culture through the lens of Judaism and look at Judaism through the prism of pop culture. As always, we are your hosts. I am Rabbi Michael Knopf. And I am Rabbi Jesse Olitsky. And on today's episode of the pod, we'll be talking about the new Hulu food documentary series, Taste the Nation, with Padma Lakshmi. Uh, full disclosure, I'm not somebody who typically loves food shows. Uh, I would often sit and watch Top Chef, which she also hosted, or sit and watch shows like Chopped on the Food Network, and I would hate it because the end, you're sitting there asking the judges to tell you if the food that the chefs prepared was good or not. How am I supposed to know I can't taste it across the screen? And yet this show really gives a different flavor, pun intended, about what a food show is supposed to be about. Mike, you want to tell us about this show? Yeah, sure. So there's really, I mean, there's, there's kind of two categories of, of food shows, right? There's the food documentary shows, maybe a third category, which is the original, the OG, which is like a, an actual cooking instructional show, right? You think of, uh, you, you think of Julia Childs and, and Emeril and, uh, and all of those, uh, Rachel Ray, right? All those folks. Uh, and then- Barefoot Contessa. Barefoot Contessa, how could I forget, right? And then you have uh, the food game shows that really Food Network uh, really pioneered. You talked about some of them. I actually was never a top, a big Top Chef fan, uh, but I did love um, uh, uh, Master Chef uh, on Fox with with Gordon Ramsay. At least the first couple of seasons of it, and then of course Master Chef Junior, which is just brilliance on television. Well, it didn't involve cooking. I was always a Supermarket Sweeps fan myself. Oh yes, well, and you can see all Supermarket Sweep now on Netflix. Um, that's that true. Been, been catching up on supermarket sweep, uh, but there, uh, the 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 kind of third category, um, which I really do love, um, is the 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 food travel documentary kind of series. You think of your, you know, Anthony Bourdain, uh, you know, No Reservations, uh, uh, may he rest in peace, uh, and uh, and on the other kind of end of the spectrum, you have uh, Triple D. Guy Fieri's Drivers, Dine-ins, and Dives, uh, and, uh, and and so. Uh, Taste of the Nation really is, I think, in that category of, of show, um, of a food documentary. Now, it's got actually kind of a blend of Anthony Bourdain and Guy Fieri. It's got Guy Fieri's uh, populism, right, uh, that uh, you're, you're really kind of going through this travelogue of, of American cuisine uh, and, and, and going right down to the, you know, you're not going to the high, or at least exclusively, you're not going to the high-end chefs. You're going also to the dives, the holes in the wall. Uh, and so on. But it's also got an element of Anthony Bourdain in it in, in, the, in the sense that um, this is really a show where you're going kind of doing a deep dive um, into a culture and its food traditions. Uh, and, uh, and, and really, in a lot of ways, Taste the Nation is a show about uh, immigration to America, the immigrant experience, what, what makes food American food, uh, and, and, and uh, how does, um, and how all sorts of different cultures have uh, entered into what we sometimes call a melting pot or maybe a salad bowl of, uh, of, of America that, that each of these different cultures and traditions uh, from Native Americans 
on through different waves of immigration that have, we've uh, we've had throughout history um, have contributed to what it means to be American and what it means uh, to to eat American food. Um, and so the show and Padma actually introduces the show from that perspective, acknowledging that she herself is an immigrant coming to this country as a young child. And part of it, not just in one of the episodes, but I think in each episode, uh, she acknowledges her own immigration story and immigration journey um, with each of the stories and populations that she talks about. Right. Uh, and, you know, so uh, she has episodes on uh, Native Americans, on uh, Peruvian Americans, on Thai Americans, on Chinese Americans, on Indian Americans, um, on uh, a, a, a people known as the Golagichi, uh, which is a, a, a group of um, uh, Native of uh, West Africa, uh, enslaved, originally enslaved peoples uh, in, in the U.S., uh, in the uh, Southeast, in particular in, in uh, South Carolina. Uh, but you also can kind of see that influence and, uh, and, and that culture uh, in places like New Orleans, other places in the South. Uh, and uh, so, uh, and uh, there's a, an episode uh, on uh, Persian Americans. Uh, there's really, uh, there's 10 episodes in all, each one uh, zeroes in Mexican Americans. Each one zeroes in on one unique uh, ethnic group and one unique culture. So, uh, Jesse, uh, you watched the show. Uh, what did you think of it? Uh, it was very powerful for me, uh, especially because the show started. Uh, the first episode is on the border, and so the show uh, right away confronts the political nature and, and the partisanship right now of any conversation that is about immigration. Um, every place that she visited um, were from places familiar to me. We talked about on a previous episode of the pod when I went with a group of rabbis with Trua and Hyas um, this past fall and what was seemingly a very different time when we could still travel. I was supposed, um, to, I was supposed to go in March. Yeah. Um, when, when we went to, uh, on a border trip to uh, El Paso and Ciudad Juarez, and really spoke about how these are sister cities and it would be normal for people to cross the border back and forth. Uh, one of the restaurants where she actually ate at was a restaurant that our group went to. Um, I, I really appreciated the acknowledgement of immigration and how immigrants are the American experience. In, in the words of Lin-Manuel Miranda, immigrants, we get, we the, get job the job done. done. Right. right? That, that Every, I thought about that a lot during, during while watching the show. Yeah, we, we, we could we could deny it as much as we want, but with the exception of uh, the indigenous Native Americans, all of us, including colonizers, are immigrants. We could also take exception to uh, those who did not come here by choice, right? Right. right? Those who who are forced, and that's the Gulagichi, for example, right? Those who are forced to come here as enslaved peoples. Um, but part of the American experience is bringing our own cultures and traditions uh, and making those Americans. The second episode, which uh, talked uh, about uh, sausages and wieners, right, and, and beer and the German tradition, specifically in Milwaukee, uh, of the sort of beer and a hot dog experience, how we think of that as such an American experience. It right. even begins with her at a ball game, when in reality, that is the German immigration experience on American culture. And so why is it to me that once upon a time, certain aspects of cultures and ethnicities 
were embraced and celebrated and became American. And there are others that are, are we're told, you know, that that's so anti-American, uh, that that is not a part of what it means to be American when millions of Americans, that is their language and that is their food and that is their country of origin and they're bringing their own experience to help define what it means to be American for them. Yeah. You know, it's, I mean, that you, you raise a really interesting point there. Uh, you know, James Baldwin famously wrote that, uh, that, that, you know, Irish uh, and Italians and Africans all made their way to this continent on the middle passage. Uh, and uh, Italians and Irish became white and Africans became enslaved and, uh, and then, or were enslaved and then uh, became a, a second class uh, status in, in, the, in the, this country's sort of history of racial hierarchy. Uh, and you, you see that in the show, right? That, uh, that the, the German example is really telling because uh, the, you know, the, there's plenty of periods in, in American history where German immigrants were, um, were looked with skepticism and then, and then vilified. Uh, but ultimately, uh, like you said, you know, there's what could be more American than eating a hot dog and a beer. They didn't even cover hamburgers, which are also a German innovation. You say like, you know, what's more American than, than a hamburger? Uh, well, a hamburger, Ham, like a Frankfurter is from Frankfurt, right? A hamburger is from Hamburg, right? And, uh, and you know, so what's more American than that? And so you see that, um, you know, that, that there's a way in which, you know, uh, uh, some of these traditions um, have been able to become sort of like uh, uh, inseparable uh, from what it means, at least uh, to, you know, for in the dominant white culture of America uh, to be considered Americans and other cultures are, are you know, uh, more exotic, right? That they, and they're, they're kind of viewed with exoticism and have to adapt their cuisine and their culture in order to uh, assimilate. So the, the whole episode of, uh, of Chinese immigrants, the episode is, um, you know, what, what is chop suey anyway? Um, and I have to admit, you know, like I always heard about chop suey. I never actually ate chop suey. Uh, and and they, they lean very, Papa Lakshmi leans very hard on that question uh, in this episode in a way that I think is, you know, uh, there, there probably are not that many uh, Chinese places anymore that are, that are really making their money on chop suey. But I think their point about it was that the, when the Chinese came to America, in addition to them com to coming here uh, through uh, um, uh, and being exploited for the labor uh, from, from the early uh, times and, and being vilified and, and ostracized uh, from, from early on in, in Chinese American history. Um, uh, and then ultimately, uh, banned from immigration altogether, uh, that that they felt that they needed to use their food in order to be less scary to the dominant culture in America. So chop suey was a way of saying like, hey, you know, um, we're we're just like you. You know, like here's here's our food in a way that you'll like and appreciate, so that you can. Um, uh, that you can come to like us and appreciate us. That was a major theme of the of the show. I think is that the way the way in which uh, immigrants um, uh, use their food um, to uh, as a bridge to other cultures, right? Um, and, and yet it also still adds, right? And this is the the difference between, I guess, white immigrants and non-white immigrants, or those who um, have the influence and persecution of colonizers, right? There was that line at the beginning of the show 
uh, the first episode, we were talking about the burrito. I actually had a uh, burrito. Best burrito I ever had was in El Paso. Um, we yeah, talked not, about not, not surprising. The, the flour tortilla is not a, an authentic Mexican uh, dish. That, that the flour came from the colonizers, and it was uh, wheat, the, the wheat, fl- wheat was, flour. You mean, yeah? Right. It was yeah. tradition. Uh, wrapped in colonization. In colonization is a very mm-hmm. powerful, powerful line. Right. So there's, you know, so there's uh, different dimensions of this, right? So we, one of the things that the that the show chronicles is the way in which um, food traditions evolved to uh, to uh, for the purpose of assimilation in, in, in one way, shape or form, right? For the purpose of like the Chinese, you know, uh, um, uh, opening themselves up to the outside culture and saying like, we, we are just like you, right? And, and also the ways in which food traditions change because of impositions on them from the outside culture, right? So like you said, the Mexican, the burrito, which like, you know, it's, it, you associate this so strongly with Mexican cooking, but uh, the inside of a burrito, by and large, is um, is tradition, is is uh, uh, native. Um, uh, the outside is is colonization. Saw that with the Native Americans too. I grew up, you know, when we learned about Native Americans, which was not um, a, a very, I think, embarrassing, uh, embarrassingly uh, uh, minuscule amount. Did we learn about Native Americans growing up in school? Uh, hopefully, that's uh, corrected for the next generations that that are coming. But um, uh, but I always learned that fry bread was a traditional Native American dish, right? And what we learn in the show um, is that fry bread is um, actually a, a, an imposition of American oppression of Native Americans, right? That, that, um, that first of all, wheat flour um, was not, uh, uh, not uh, indigenous uh, uh, to indigenous peoples. Um, they, you know, domesticated uh, uh, maize, uh, and uh, and and use other things to to make to make flour and to make um, uh, bread. Uh, so the wheat flour was not in native, uh, and uh, the frying in oil was was not native either. Uh, and so uh, and and chronicled you know all the ways in which um, you know the American mistreatment and oppression of Native Americans has um, has. Uh, ravaged Native American culture such that like, you know, the, the cultural output that they're known for is not even theirs. And so many Native people have lost their uh, indigenous traditions because, um, because they have been dislodged and dislocated um, and then, you know, had, you know, uh, uh, you know sh- fat, sugar, and, uh, and, and salt imposed on them. Um, through, you know, through the oppressors and through the colonizers. Like you and I were talking uh, about how we found it a bit surprising somewhat that there wasn't an episode on Jewish food. Um, And yet, uh, looking through each of these episodes, uh, there there are plenty of foods, um, schnitzel being one of them, right, potato pancakes that were referenced, or I guess really that's me and my ancestors, Eastern European Ashkenazic Jews, um, that I would call Jewish food. What do you make of the idea... uh, in relation to food and the role that food plays in the Jewish experience, can we make a specific assumption about what Jewish food is or is not? Well, that's a really good question. I mean, first of all, I was surprised that there wasn't a a, a Jewish episode, and, and my guess is that uh, it's possible that they're saving it for season two. 
Um, because uh, there also wasn't an Italian episode, right? You heard it here first. They were picked up for a second season. That's right. That's right. Um, Padma, have your people called my people. Um, but, uh, you know, the, but there wasn't an Italian episode and, you know, that, that was surprising to me also. Uh, and like you, like you mentioned, right, in the German episode, there were foods that we commonly associate as Jewish foods, uh, although they made the potato pancakes all wrong. Uh, and, um, uh, in the Persian episode, there are foods that I always associate. I, I, living in Los Angeles for several years, um, there were, uh, you know, I, I could see all the ways in which those Persian foods were also the Persian uh, Jewish foods that, that I, I had come to love and, and enjoy, um, and so on and so forth, right? So, you know, that's an interesting thing about Jewish food is, first of all, because, Jew, because the Jewish people are a multi-ethnic, multi-racial people, uh, it means that there isn't one Jewish food tradition. Right. There are many Jewish food traditions. And it also speaks to something that the show really points out, which is that um, assimilation is a two-way street. So, um, so that when you, when you kind of like open up your personal borders to, uh, to, to, uh, to fit in with the surrounding culture, you also let the surrounding culture fit into you and, and seep into your, into your being. So that's, you know, um, there, are, there are ways in which you know, like potato pancakes, for example, they, they are something that, that many Jews uh, associate as being a Jewish food, but they, you know, it's not like most Jews I know eat potato pancakes or most Ashkenazi Jews I know, even the ones who still have, you know, kind of like a deep attachment to their ancestral traditions um, aren't eating potato pancakes, you know, on a daily basis. They're eating them over Hanukkah because I don't know there's a kosher deli in New Jersey that when you have your your uh two foot high stacked deli sandwich it has about a uh a plate size full of potato pancake as the side dish (laughs) which is that's awesome uh but you're you're bringing up another another great point right the the uh um, delicatessen um you know the mile high deli sandwich um is something that's uniquely Jewish American right the Jews in the old country didn't eat Mile high pastrami sandwiches. Uh, pastrami is uh, is is a Romanian uh, word that was picked up by Jewish uh, people in in New York. Uh, delicatessen is a German word, right? That was picked up by Jewish people living in New York uh, in the uh, in the in the 19th and early 20th centuries. So uh, so the, so some of the things that you know, I I'm I'm from a deli family, right? My my uh, grandfather and my grandmother on my dad's side uh, uh, grew up. In uh, in Delhi households, my mom, uh, uh, my grandparents on my uh, on my mom's side um, uh, owned a deli and and and, uh, and butcher shop and grocery store in Miami, right? So that's that's my Jewish memory too. Is the Mile High Deli sandwiches, but those aren't um, quintessentially Jewish, right? Some of the some of the quintessentially Jewish things that we brought that Ashkenazi Jews brought to America are not necessarily Jewish. They were, they were associated most commonly with Jews in America because we're the ones who brought them here. But the bagel, as an example, or, right. or Bialy, um, were, were uh, commonly eaten in the countries where, you know, in Poland and, uh, and, and uh, other places in uh, Eastern Europe uh, where, we, where we came from. So, um, so you know, it's, the things that now, you know, uh, whenever we have, you know, you go to summer camp, you have like a, you know, the, the Jewish meal, um, you get falafel and hummus and, and pita, right? Um, and I, I like to think 
that you know there were Jews and there you know have continually been Jews living in uh, the land of Israel and in the Middle East uh, for for millennia. Uh, but uh, but my my guess is that uh, that falafel and hummus didn't become popular Jewish foods um, until modern resettlement in the in the land of Israel. Right, you go to uh, a Lebanese restaurant and they'll serve you the same thing. Exactly, exactly. Right. So um, so you know it's it's. It, it's interesting. I would say that, that, you know, to my mind, you know, uh, and this is, I think, a theme in the show, there, there is Jewish food that's associated with our cultural memory, right? There is a sense in Judaism that food is, is one of the ways, at least, that we pass down and hold on to tradition. Um, but to my mind, you know, the, the, the most, the best example of that and the most ubiquitous uh, Jewishly uh, example of that is matzah, right? So the Torah says that you eat this food and this food is the way that you're going to pass down memory from generation to generation. So Judaism has, I think, that insight, uh, but we don't have, I think, one monolithic, unique food culture. I think that's fair, but we do use food for the sake of ritual, right? That I would say ritual... Uh, for Shabbat, for holidays, revolves around food more than anything else. If I ask you, you know, what comes to mind, if I ask our kids in our preschools what comes to mind when we talk about Shabbat, the first thing that would come to their minds is challah. When we talk about Purim, it's home intention. When we talk about, uh, when we talk about uh, Hanukkah, it's, it's latkes, it's potato pancakes, or sufgan yo, jelly donuts. And maybe that's because kids like food and we use food as a way to, uh, as an entry point, as a way to excite them about Jewish culture and Jewish ritual and Jewish experience. But food is very much linked to Jewish ritual because meals are linked to Jewish ritual. We have sudot mitzvah. Right. We, we have these sacred meals that are obligatory. But, but, you also, but you also just listed out, you know, a really Ashkenormative list of, of foods, right? So, you know, so yes, right? Uh, sudot mitzvah are ubiquitous within Judaism. But if you ask, you know, an Ashkenazi Jew, like, what would you expect at a bris? Uh, I just want to put this as an aside that one time I went to a bris and the family put out on the spread uh, cocktail weenies. It was a fleshic uh, bris. I just thought that that was a little, you know, a little much cocktail weenies but um, right you'd expect bagel ox and cream cheese <laughs> right bagel ox and cream cheese right but if you uh, i went to a yemenite uh bris when i was a brit milah when i was when i was living in jerusalem um and there was not a bagel or a lock to be found in the entire place right well, you're you better have, off because israelis don't know how to make a good bagel that's true that's the whole other thing um Right there was there was jachnun and malawach and hummus right there was all these things so um so uh so the, that, that I think shows that uh, there's a recognition within Judaism that food is uh, an important sort of like organizing principle, but it's disorganized in the sense of like what counts as Jewish food. Part of that is the experience of, di of, of living in diaspora for 2000 years, right? So, um, so you know, the, the, the African diaspora um, is much more recent. That's what I think the most in the terms of the cultures that were explored in the show, the, um, uh, the, the most, the, uh, the most parallel, I think, diaspora to the ancient Jewish diaspora is the African diaspora. Um, and you can see the ways in which, um, like, like what, what, what enslaved Africans, um, and their descendants were cooking, 
in, in the swamps and bayous of, of South Carolina is not what their ancestors were cooking in West Africa, or not entirely what their ancestors were cooking in West Africa. There was some kind of fusion, uh, including you know, what, what they were allowed to do and what they could find uh, in, in the New World. Well, that was true of you know, the Jewish diaspora in, in Spain and Portugal and Germany and France and uh, Egypt and, and Iraq, right? And all of these places where you have you know, some traditions that come with you, right? The thing that I can think of off the top of my head uh, is, uh, is matzo balls, right? Uh, uh, or knedlach uh, for Ashkenazi Jews, right? So matzah came with them from uh, the beginnings of the diaspora. Uh, what they do with it um, was a, a, a dialogue between those ancient traditions, those inherited traditions, and the realities of the environment in which they found themselves. I wonder, uh, Padma speaks about assimilation. Uh, in the third episode, she talks about her own family's experience. Um, I found the conversation she had, the beautiful conversation with her daughter making dosa for, for breakfast, her daughter confronting her and saying, I don't want to make you feel bad, but I like pancakes more than dosa. Uh, American, like pancakes. Do American pancakes. But I like dosa more than waffles. So, you know, uh, she said she'd take it. The, the idea of assimilation and what that means for the Jewish community, she sort of wrestled with that, you know, do we leave behind certain foods um, because we don't want to be associated with them either. We don't want to be associated with the pain and heartache and hardship of the, right, the old country, like these stories, which were certainly urban legends, but stories nonetheless of people throwing to fill in overboard as their ships were coming to Ellis Island because they associated that ritual with the hardship of the pogroms and wanted a fresh start in the new worlds uh, in, in this country. How do we as Jews wrestle with the idea of assimilation? So much of the food that you talked about and you even acknowledged was really about American Jewish food or Jewish American food. It's Jewish to us because of uh, where Jewish immigrants settled in this country from. How, how do we define success as Americans when we have successfully assimilated into this country as Jews? Um, and we now fear losing, we, the organized Jewish community, you and I as rabbis, right? We fear losing Judaism and the Jewish experience because of too much assimilation. Yeah, and I, I identified uh, with, with a lot of that thread in, uh, in Taste the Nation, uh, where you had you know, elders within certain communities you know, trying really hard, dedicating their lives to um, instilling a sense of appreciation and ownership over their traditions to the next generation that has that is mostly um, assimilated and you know it's you know more um, organically American. Uh, it's no different than I was trying to convince B'nai Mitzvah students why there's meaning in that ritual. Right, right, exactly, right, and uh, and and you know part of me feels like I'm not as good at it as some of these uh, uh, you know grandmothers were in in the show, and 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 part of that I think is is uh, is you know, come by honestly, uh, if I, if I cooked better and, uh, and, and encountered people through, uh, Jewish, uh, culinary traditions, I think that actually we might be more successful rather than, than textual traditions. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, I think that it's a, it's a really interesting question. Um, a former chancellor of the Jewish theological seminary, Gerson Cohen, 
uh, wrote a paper once um, where he talks about the blessing of assimilation in Jewish history. Um, and, uh, and so he, you know, he talks about the ways in which uh, our openness to the outside culture, which is a natural uh, part of assimilation, um, has benefited us in the long term, right? There wouldn't be rabbinic Judaism um, without, uh, or, or Jewish mysticism for that matter, without, uh, with, without engagement with uh, Greek philosophy, uh, uh, just as one example. Uh, and so, you know, so there, there's, there's a way in which, you know, uh, truly, I, such, such as you can have a, you know, fully isolated culture, um, you know, it's possible for those kind of cultures to uh, wither after some time without any um, uh, engagement with the outside world. And then there's that, and then there are ways of, um, of, you know, sort of that, that like living, breathing dynamic and interaction with the outside culture. Um, you, you know, coming to become a, a sort of indelible part of your own tradition, like like we talked about before. You know, it's hard to think of American Jewish cuisine without thinking of you know pastrami and the delicatessen, um, even though the, those aren't really originally uniquely uh, Jewish foods or Jewish institutions. Uh, the same thing is true, by the way, of uh, of Italian food, right? So um, a to the tomato is a new world crop. Right, so Italians were not making marinara sauce uh, until you know sometime uh, in the 15th or 16th century at right. the at the very earliest. We associate that. Right? It's hard to think of, you know. So uh, so we we tend to think of assimilation as 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 entirely a bad thing. Um, I often find it funny that like you know Jews who like dress in Western dress uh, and speak English. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, gone to college, you know, talk, lament assimilation. Uh, be, but like, they uh, don't think, have, this, have the self-awareness of recognizing the ways in which assimilation has uh, blessed them and in ways in which they are already, you know. Um, right, assimilation so, is why our ancestors came to this country. Right. Uh, because they can have that success because they were not ostracized in their shtetls because they had opportunities in business and in whatever field they wanted to pursue, because their children could get an adequate education, uh, right? The Jewish people, because of assimilation, the Jewish people in America is arguably the most successful Jewish right. community in Jewish history. Right, right. Uh, you know, and, uh, I meant to add before, right? That's also why you can't, I think, get a good bagel in Israel because um, the Ashkenazi Jews who, uh, who who founded the state and who kind of established the dominant culture of the state wanted to create a new Jew. And so they left behind, um, the, you know, they're like the Jews who came to America and threw their tefillin overboard, right? They left behind the shtetl to, uh, to become kind of rooted in the land, in the land of Israel, right? Bringing bagels with them and that tradition of, of how to cook bagels um, was was antithetical to what they were trying to do to like re-indigenize uh, Judaism in, in the land of Israel. Um, you know, so, uh, so I think we need to acknowledge uh, that, you know, that first of all, like some of our assimilation or maybe a lot of our assimilation is by design. Uh, sure. Two, that we've been really successful at it. Uh, three, that it's not all bad. Uh, and four, which is true that it can be threatening um, to you know to the to the practices and, and uh, beliefs and texts and traditions that that we hold most dear. So it's it's all of those things simultaneously, and and you saw that in in Taste the Nation with with all these cultures wrestling with you know how much do we want to blend in, 
and how much do we want to preserve of our own uniqueness? And that struck me, uh, you know, that really hit home for me. What do you think? It's, it's interesting. I, I really appreciated, um, especially the episode um, about the Gulagichi, uh, about using food, the food experience to reintroduce one's tradition to people who have forgotten it or who have chosen or been forced to totally assimilate and separate themselves from that tradition. Um, uh, a, a friend from high school, Jeff Yaskowitz, started the Gefilteria a number of years ago, actually uh, wrote the book, The Gefilte Manifesto, where his whole purpose is to use old world Jewish foods. Again, this is Ashka normative, uh, but these Ashkenazi Jewish foods, gefilte fish, kugels, uh, pickled uh, vegetables, to reintroduce them to millennials into modern Jewish community in America as a way to help us reconnect with these ancient rituals that we've also left behind. I still believe that one's stomach is the closest way to get to one's heart, uh, right? There's no different than how do we get people in our door for a Shabbos in our synagogues? You have a big Shabbat dinner. It's much easier to get people to come to Shabbat services. We have Shabbat Kiddush, or we had under normal circumstances, had Shabbat Kiddush lunch each week. And people would stay and linger and schmooze and eat together and break bread together in a way that they wouldn't if they were rushing out the door right after Shabbat services. And so I think the opportunity to re-engage with the foods of our traditions allows us to help future generations still find meaning in those traditions uh, in a way that we would otherwise otherwise be be skeptical, or they would be skeptical. America is the melting pot, uh, and, and it's intentional. But if you think about that melting pot, that that imagery for for a second, how do we celebrate that while still finding room for our own food at the potluck? Right, not trying everybody else's dishes, and but still saying that our food is what uh, is authentically ours and, and tastes best. Um, that's the challenge, but I do believe that food is our way, and that's what I took out of this conversation. Food is our way to reintroduce meaning and purpose in Jewish ritual and in Jewish community and in Jewish experience in a way that ritual in and of itself doesn't necessarily do. I have to, I've asked this question all the, all the time. If I had to choose between every member of my congregation coming to Kabbalah Shabbat services or every member of my congregation not showing up to services, nobody shows up Friday night, but everybody's having Shabbat dinner in one another's homes, I'd always choose the latter. Because through food and through meals, through breaking bread, you have lasting experiences in a way that you can't necessarily when you're having a communal prayer experience. Yeah, you know, so we, so we actually did that in my uh, congregation. We we developed an initiative that basically uh, encouraged people and put people in in clusters and chavrot, uh, so that they would smart be, minds think alike. So we did too, we, right? So that we'd be having people have. have but I, you know, I think that there's um, a catch to it. I don't think that the food itself is sufficient. Um, although I, I do, agree, I, you know, I was thinking when 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 you were when you were sharing that uh, of the expression, you know, the way to a person's heart is through their stomach, right? So I think that there's definitely a way in which that's, that's true. Uh, but 
you know, I, I think that, you know, uh, just a meal with Jews gathered at it, um, uh, even if it incorporates traditional Jewish foods, um, doesn't necessarily uh, contain and impart what you and I might want it to contain and impart, right? Shabbos is the additional ingredient there that I think, it, you know, matters and, and is meaningful, right? So it's not just gathering for gathering's sake, and it's not just eating for eating's sake, um, even if all of those things are like 100% Jewish, I mean, there's benefit to that too. But the but but what I, I think one of the things that we're interested in, in addition to Jews connecting with each other uh, and forming community in that way, um, is that, you know, these, you know, the, the wisdom and practices of, of, uh, of, of our ancestors um, become a, an indelible part of their life as well, right? So it's, it's both of those things simultaneously, you know, um, this is one of the things that, uh, that if, you know, I, I might get some people tweeting at me for this, uh, but I think that the reform movement learned the hard way. Uh, it, early in the reform movement, uh, there was a deliberate and conscious effort to, um, to jettison, you know, sort of like the tribal aspects of tradition, including food traditions, right? So kosher- Actually debatable according to American Jewish historians. What is? Uh, about the Trefa banquet. And, and oh, no, no, no. Yeah, well, the, the Trefa banquet in and of itself is, is I think, a debatable thing. The, the point is, you know, uh, you could, I mean, this is, I, I don't think this is actually debatable, that, that, that the early reformers uh, through uh, much of the 19th century uh, made an argument that, um, uh, that first of all, you know, uh, re reform Judaism was about personal autonomy, uh, but also made an argument that, that aspects of tribal tradition like uh, like kashrut um, were unnecessary, right? Were not a part of ethical monotheism that they felt like the, that uh, Reform Judaism was ultimately about. Uh, and what uh, what it seems to me that uh, many Reform uh, Jews and especially Reform Jewish leaders have discovered over the years um, is that uh, is that kashrut. Uh, uh, actually has a, a, a significance, not necessarily a spiritual significance, not necessarily a, uh, a moral significance, but has significance as a sort of organizing Jewish principle, as a transmitter of Jewish values, as a, as a vessel through which uh, we, we um, absorb the, uh, the, the teachings of our tradition, right? So in other words, that food is a container uh, for uh, how we interact together as Jews, for what brings us together as Jews, what binds us as a Jewish people, uh, and, uh, and and what enables us to pass down our traditions from from generation to generation. Right, food is the the agent, right? It, it is the the vehicle to allow us to have these traditions. There's the Hasidic story about the Shabbat spice, and right, somebody delivers a Shabbat meal, I think, to to the king or something. I don't remember the story totally, but he's trying to replicate the dish and it doesn't taste as good. It doesn't taste as good because what was missing was it was the same roasted chicken. It was the same matzo ball soup. It was the same kugel. What was missing was Shabbat. Uh, but I do think that food is our entry point to meaningful ritual. Food in and of itself is not sacred, is not holy, but because so much of Jewish community is about gathering together Right? A synagogue is not a Beit Tefillah, it is not a Beit Midrash, it is first and foremost a Beit Knesset, a gathering place. I think this is the challenge that so many synagogues, ours I'm sure included, are having right now, is when we are predominantly virtual, 
because of this pandemic, how do we still find meaningful experiences when we're not gathering around each other's tables and breaking bread together? How do we still have holy sacred experiences when there, there's not chicken soup involved? Right, right. you know, there's a, a, a passage that's sometimes overlooked, right? At, at the giving of the 10 commandments. Um, but uh, as God gives the 10 commandments to Moses uh, uh, and, and the people assembled at the mountain, then God calls Moses and the elders up to the top of the mountain for a meal, right? So there, so you're right that there, that's, you know, the, the, the insight from our tradition is that there, uh, that, that there's something holy, uh, you know, a, a, a gathering is not complete without a meal that, the, you know, what, what's notable about Yom Kippur, why, you know, it's the exception that proves the rule um, uh, that, uh, that, that, you know, uh, makes it unique that there's absolutely no food at Yom Kippur, uh, but that's, but that makes it the exception that proves the rule. And then of course, what do people like really look forward to in Yom Kippur is gathering with family um, at a breakfast. That's really difficult. So what do you, what do you replace it with now, Jesse? Like what, what's the, what's the Torah of this time uh, that, uh, that, that we can offer uh, that, uh, that, that can compensate for the lack of, of you know, shared gatherings over a, over a table? It's really hard. I, I think that's what all Jewish communities are struggling with. Uh, we are doing an activity uh, that some synagogues I know have also done uh, this week where we are providing a, a challah for every family who wants that they can pick it up at our shul. Uh, and we are going to over Zoom attempt to all have Shabbat dinner together, to right, sing Shalom Aleichem together and light Shabbat candles together and, and make Kiddush Motzi together. Uh, nothing that we do virtually equals the in-person experience. Um, and that's especially true uh, when so much of what we do in person, ritually speaking, is around meals, right? Pesach is the most celebrated holiday, Jewish holiday in America. It may have been taken over by Hanukkah, but the most, but the most recent Pew study shows that an absurdly large number of Jews still celebrate Pesach because Passover is about a meal. It's about a meal first and foremost. Nobody has to go to shul for seven hours straight like you would on Yom Kippur. It's about... Uh, sitting together and, and eating. And how do we replicate that experience? How do we build holy experience when we can't do that? We had our congregation had a virtual community Seder and everybody made their own foods and they were in their own boxes on, on Zoom. How'd it go? Uh, but uh, my colleague, Rabbi Rachel Martyr, did a phenomenal job leading it. Um, and it's it's doesn't equal the experience, the in-person experience. I think we've found that about everything that we've done throughout this pandemic, that, that virtual experiences are not the same experience. A virtual community is not the same as an in-person community, but we are tr all trying our hardest. Um, and maybe we can still break bread together, right, over, over Zoom. So I would, I would say it like this. I mean, I think that there are ways that I've discovered that uh, virtual community, that the way we're gathering and uh, and, and thinking about how to do Jewish now, um, you know, th there there are benefits to the way we're we're uh, gathering right now. Um, you know, not the least of which is, you know, 
I can't because of the rabbi of the congregation. But if I were a congregant of the congregation, I could come to Shabbos services in my pajamas with a cup of coffee and no one would like bat an eyelash at it, right? Which is- which You is, do still come in your pajamas. It's just your webcam doesn't show that you're wearing yeah, pajamas. That's right, that's right. Um, it's, it's the magic of virtual backgrounds, uh, also virtual foregrounds. Um, I, wear green, I wear green pajamas and so I can project whatever I want onto the, onto the front. Um, but, you know, like I- I found, we didn't do a virtual Seder uh, in our congregation this year, um, but I found uh, Passover, especially the first night of Passover, was, was really difficult this year. Um, you know, it, not only the food, but just like the act of gathering. I mean, I, I love Pesach so much, and, um, and it just was uh, really difficult. And, what I, and, and then um, during Cholomoed, uh, the, the intermediate days of Passover, I was uh, doing some learning uh, and, and davening with uh, w- virtually with, with the congregation uh, and came across a, a great uh, midrash uh, of uh, uh, two rabbis who are, uh, who are traveling near the destruction of the second temple sometime after it was destroyed by the Romans. And one of the rabbis, you know, says, uh, breaks out into tears and says, you know, woe to us, the place where the Jewish people would have their atone for their sins um, is destroyed, you know, implying that we, we, can't, um, we can't engage Jewishly anymore uh, because the mode in which we engage Jewishly has been demolished, right? It's notable that that mode of engaging in Judaism involved eating, right? It involved in-person gathering, involved eating. And, uh, and his teacher that he was walking with says to him, uh, my son, do not be aggrieved because there's another, God has given us another mode of atonement uh, in its place. Uh, and that is, and what is that? It's deeds of loving kindness. Uh, and then he quotes a verse from the prophet Zechariah that says, uh, because I uh, desire, sorry, the, uh, I said Zechariah, but I'm, I'm doubting myself and I want to say maybe it's Hosea. Anyway, one of the prophets who said, right? Because I, I desire kindness and not sacrifice. So, you know, there, there's, uh, there, there's a way in which these moments can actually, you know, open us up to, uh, to, to seeing, you know, uh, beyond the vessel, right? So that the, 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 you know, we had a, a particular vessel for our tradition, which was a certain kind of gathering, a certain kind of uh, uh, a certain kind of ritual, a certain kind of food, uh, but that is the form and not the substance, right? And so what's the substance? The substance, perhaps, is gimut chasadim, is, is chesed, is tzedek, right? And so how do, we, um, how do we get back to the core of what Judaism is and develop uh, the, the, the vessels that work for the context that we're in to be able to practice them and transmit them, given that we're in a new, that's, that, that's what our ancestors did with, um, with all of these food traditions too, right? They found themselves in new contexts and had to adapt the vessel. Sure, right. They, they adapt, right? That's, that, that's the, the fried food that you eat on Hanukkah is different depending on where you're from. Right. Um, we eat latkes because potatoes were popular and cheap in Eastern Europe. Right. Um, right. But they, I, I heard that they originally came from uh, Italy, where they were cheese pancakes, like ricotta pancakes. Hmm. It's, uh, that, that's our greatest challenge right now, the Jewish community. I think all institutions is how do we adapt in this moment? Um, I think the, the show, to, to wrap things up, the show itself was all about that. 
how did immigrants adapt and how does the food that they eat and the food that we all eat that we think represents a certain culture really represents that adaption, that assimilation to America. What I take from the show more than anything else is that so much of the American experience is the immigration experience, an experience that is so partisan right now, an experience that I, I don't understand why it's so political because so many of, of our ancestors had that experience. Um, to be an immigrant is to be American. And unless we all accept that, we will never get past this, this stage of it being such a partisan conversation. Yeah, you know, I mean, I think that that you you hit a really great point there. Uh, you know, I think that uh, America, from its inception, uh, promised to be uh, the the you know the the world's unique experiment, the world's first experiment in you know multi ethnic, multi racial uh, democracy. Um, even if the founders didn't necessarily uh, envision what you know all men created equal, didn't necessarily envision it to mean uh, literally all people. Uh, nevertheless, they use that language that, that uh, as Dr. King said, you know, was the promissory note for future generations that we all have a share in, in this democracy. And I think that what Taste the Nation shows is, is really the, the, um, the, the, the color, um, the, the scope of, um, of the sort of like ethnic patchwork uh, um, that we have here in America and the ways in which, um, you know, maybe it's because you know, the the European colonizers knew what they did to the Native Americans and so viewed future waves of immigrants through the prism of what they did to dislocate other people and feared their own dislocation. Um, and so brought in immigrants as it served their needs for, you know, uh, uh, labor or other kinds of, you know, exploitative uh, concerns. Uh, but then, you know, when, when they, you know, when, when a new king arose and saw the, children of Israel multiplying uh, over the face of Egypt, right, says that we have to deal shrewdly with them and, and you know, and, and isolate right. them and kick, kick them out. So, um, and you see that throughout the, the show is, you know, an, an immigrant community comes in and then the doors are shut behind them. Um, and sometimes they even participate in the shutting of the doors behind them uh, because, um, uh, because of the sense that, you know, that, that, that uh, as more cultures come in, um, it, uh, it it can you know dislocate us. It can so the the challenge of American democracy is always you know how do we expand the sphere of what it means to be American uh, uh, without uh, uh, while still maintaining um, a, a sense of uniqueness about uh, about uh, what it is to be an American. Amen. We'll leave it uh, pun intended. Some food for thoughts for you uh, as always. We want to invite you to uh, smash that subscribe button, uh, to review us, to rate us. It helps us spread our Torah to others. And uh, as always, until next time, I'm Rabbi Jesse Olitsky. And I'm Rabbi Michael Knopf. Take care, everyone.